Hello, and welcome back to the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriel Taylor. Today's episode is somewhat of a crash course on the U.S. housing crisis. We'll talk about what the housing crisis is, some of the causes, and some potential solutions. I'm joined today by Richard Kellenberg. Kellenberg is a scholar of both education and housing policy, and he's currently serving as a non-resident scholar at the McCourt School of Public Policy and a lecturer at the George Washington University Trachtenberg School of Public Policy. He's also a senior fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute and an author many times over, who recently published a book titled Excluded, How Snob Zoning, NIMBYism, and Class Bias Built the Walls We Don't See. Richard, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Oh, great to be with you, Gabriel. So before we really get into the housing crisis, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be where you are today and what sort of ignited the particular interests in education and housing that have shaped your career so far? Sure. So I I was raised in a a socially conscious family. Uh, We cared about fairness. and, uh, And so naturally, I was kind of drawn to education issues because that's so central to the promise of equal opportunity in America. And I spent about uh, 25 years writing about uh, education policy in a variety of uh, ways, K through 12 education, inequality in higher education as well. But ultimately, I I just kept knocking my head against uh, housing policy. And so that's, that's where I've I've ended up now in focusing on, uh, in my new book, on, on the walls, uh, the kind of the invisible walls that we build between different communities uh, through, through zoning regulations that really have a huge impact on educational opportunity. So I want to talk about the book in a little bit, but first I want to sort of set the stage for our listeners. So I'm sure most people have heard that the U.S. is currently experiencing a housing crisis, but they might not know exactly what a housing crisis is. So can you talk to us a little bit about what makes the current state of American housing unique to other periods of time and what constitutes what we're going through right now as a crisis? Yeah, well, I I guess I would say we have a a dual crisis. So the, the main crisis that people are talking about in housing is the problem of unaffordable housing. Rents are enormously high for people, much higher than they have been relative to income in in the past in the United States. And housing is a lot more expensive than it is in other countries, which suggests maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, So that's the main housing crisis. But I think there's also a second housing crisis that has to do with rising economic segregation in America. So our our housing is also much more economically segregated. So rich and poor are living apart much more so than in the past. And and these two housing crises, I think, are, are related. The ways in which housing has become unaffordable and the ways in which housing has become uh, more economically segregated. It's interesting. You talk about this widening gap between the cost of housing and income. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what's causing that gap? Yeah. Well, well, there's there's a um, you know one central cause, which is that in the United States, unlike most other countries, every community 
has tremendous power in deciding who gets to live there. Uh, and they, they use a tool called exclusionary zoning, which uh, sets the parameters on what type of housing will be available in that community. So in 75% of the land in most urban areas, you can't build anything other than a detached single-family home. So, so no duplexes, no triplexes, no small apartment buildings, certainly no big apartment buildings. Uh, and that's pervasive in the United States, and, and that does two things. One, it artificially limits the supply of housing in a region. So in a metropolitan area, if it's illegal to build any kind of multifamily housing, you've, by definition, limited the number of units you know, within reasonable distance of jobs and you know, the core community. Uh, and the other thing you've done is make sure that people of modest means who may be able to afford a multifamily unit um, but not an individual single-family home, uh, will be excluded. And that means either that they're going to have to live you know, outside the metropolitan region, or if they can't afford to live in a metropolitan region, they'll live on the outskirts uh, oftentimes, um, because that's where housing is more, more affordable. So these invisible walls that we build through zoning policy are really at the root of, of both the affordability crisis and the economic segregation crisis. Right. So we've got these high prices and then these zoning regulations that are sort of driving people out towards, you know, the outskirts of towns. And uh, well, right before we started recording, we were talking about rural Ohio. And, you know, you look at Zillow or you go to these more rural parts of the country and the housing you know, is not astronomical in the way that you'd see it in, you know, your typical urban centers. So I guess my question is this, is the housing crisis a uniquely urban problem? Or is this also kind of pervading, you know, rural parts of the country in other ways? Well, I'll, I'll agree with both of those, <laughs> those things. So it is primarily an urban metropolitan area phenomenon uh, because that's where oftentimes the jobs with the highest wages are and, and people are flocked to metropolitan areas or want to flock to those areas for that reason. And at the same time, the crisis in affordability is spreading to some places that hadn't dealt with this issue before. So with the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously a lot of us started working remotely. Knowledge workers, at least, can work remotely. Um, and you see across the country uh, what a group called Up for Growth is called these immigration magnets, internal immigration magnets. Places in Colorado and uh, Montana and Utah that have become very unaffordable because all these you know, fairly well-to-do knowledge workers move to areas to work remotely, you know, they're around beautiful scenery. You can see why they do it. But if there's not enough housing, then that's going to price other people out of those communities. So you're kind of seeing gentrification and displacement in parts of the country that hadn't been a problem. So to sum up, I would say, you know, primarily this is a crisis in metropolitan areas. But some rural communities are now sharing the burden of unaffordable housing. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. But, you know, that makes sense in these rural areas. You know, one house might be on a two-acre plot of land as opposed to, you know, a very small plot in an urban area. Yeah. So without that density, it really doesn't take much demand to drive those prices up. Right. And a little bit ago, you had mentioned these invisible walls that we're building through exclusionary zoning, which is a central theme of your new book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the main principles and takeaways of the book and how they play into what we're seeing in the affordability crisis? Sure. So people recognize that as you travel around a metropolitan area, you know some communities are wealthier, uh, some less wealthy, some communities are predominantly white, others have a lot of people of color. And I think many people just kind of take this for granted. This is just the way it's always been. It's always going to be this way. And that it's, many people think that it's, it's the working of the marketplace, that, you know, desirable communities that have strong schools are more expensive. So, of course, they're not going to be able to accommodate people of lesser means. What that misses is that you could create much more affordable housing uh, smaller units in wealthier areas, predominantly white areas, and people could enjoy those public schools, high-performing public schools in those communities, if it weren't illegal to build multifamily housing. And there are lots of other tricks that communities use to uh, exclude. It's not just the bans on you know, duplexes, triplexes, and apartments. It's things like requiring a minimum lot size and if you want to live in the community. In addition, there are some communities that will say, okay, you can have some multifamily housing here, but we're going to require that it use this very expensive brick siding, which has the effect of excluding people based on income. And when you look at the history of these laws, uh, it's really quite dark. Uh, You know, the original idea behind zoning was a good one, which was We want to promote health and safety. We don't want polluting factories right next to residential areas. And so you'd want to sort, and that makes sense. But quickly in the early 20th century, communities adopted racial zoning laws. So these were laws which made it illegal for black people to buy in predominantly white neighborhoods. And the justification, incredible as it may appear to us today, was was health and safety. Uh, The mayor of Baltimore said he wanted to quarantine, that was his word, quarantine black people to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. Uh, You know, this was the the racist thinking at the time. The other piece was we need zoning to protect the property values of white people. And that's a little bit more contemporary. We still hear property values pop up a lot in, in conversations about zoning. And so some people are familiar with this, you know, sordid history of racial zoning. But I try to, in the book, update it and say it, it morphed over time into class or economic zoning. So in 1917, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down those terrible racial zoning laws. But communities quickly shifted to the, you know, the single family zoning only to prevent most black people from moving into white communities. And, uh, and now we have really class bias in our zoning uh, laws. And so it happens within each racial group. So there are white communities and there's one white community in Wisconsin, almost you know 
hardly any people of color in the community, and yet they adopted zoning laws and other methods to keep poorer whites away from wealthier whites. Uh, and you see it in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is a predominantly black community, and there, there were bans on multifamily housing that were implemented by wealthier black people to, to exclude poorer black people. So, so now we have pervasive class discrimination in housing that has enormous impact on opportunity for for kids and for families because lots of research suggests that low-income people can can thrive and do great things if given the right environment, but concentrations of poverty are, are bad for opportunity, and that's what our zoning laws tend to promote. Is there like a sort of symbiosis in having, you know, these uh, mixed-income communities? Like, so you had mentioned that there's more economic benefits for low-income people. So let's say you're trying to make the argument to the more wealthy power holders. Is there like a benefit that they might see to having a mixed-income community? Absolutely. That's a great point. Uh, So I think there are two arguments for wealthier communities to to open up a bit. Uh, You know, one would be I, I would try to appeal to their to their morality, that there's, they may not realize that by adopting zoning laws, they are imposing enormous harms on people that, you know, some families are going to have to choose between medicine and, and making rent for their kids just because these zoning laws are limiting the supply of housing in the region. So part of it would be a moral argument, and that's had some impact in some communities. But primarily, most people are motivated by self-interest. And And I would say to people in exclusive communities, you're missing out. You're missing out on on one of the great things about America, that uh, we are a country that, you know, where people come from all corners of the world. And uh, and one of the things that makes life interesting uh, is having people from different backgrounds interact and sharing their novel experiences that you may not be familiar with. I mean, we see it most clearly in, um, in things like food or entertainment, uh, where we all benefit from having a variety of, of people from a variety of backgrounds, bringing those, those types of experiences and attributes to a community. But in, you know, in America today, uh, your life is just going to be more interesting if you are not in an isolated bubble. And your kids will be better prepared for life in 21st century America, where a period of changing demographics, if you isolate your kids and, and all they know are other wealthier people, many, you know, most of them white, you're forfeiting the opportunity for them you know, to learn how to navigate diversity in the workplace and, and to learn from uh, different cultures and, and people with different sets of life experiences. So a little bit earlier, you had mentioned that, you know, a lot of the problems that we're seeing in the U.S. are not necessarily problems that we're seeing abroad in other countries. Are there countries that we can sort of point to that seem to have their housing markets in order? And are there like lessons that we can take from any of those countries to try to apply here in the U.S.? Yes, I think, uh, you know, if you look to Places like Japan and, and Germany, they have different sets of zoning regimes than we do. In Japan, for example, 
the, the zoning is set much more at the national level as opposed to uh, the local level. And housing is more affordable and it's less economically segregated than in the United States. And so that's kind of political science 101, that if you, if you have national leaders who are looking at what, you know, what's good for the country, what's good for everyone, then you're more likely to get positive types of, of zoning laws than if every community is setting the rules and they're all trying to manipulate those rules to keep certain people out. That's not, that's not good for anyone. Uh, so, so let me give you one example. There's something that a lot of communities engage in called, called fiscal zoning. So the idea is, well, we want people in our community who are going to contribute a lot in taxes, you know, if they're wealthier, and, uh, and not consume that many services. So they, they, sometimes communities will, you know, specifically target, well, let's, let's recruit this, you know, 55 and over housing development because their kid, you know, they're not, they don't have kids in the public schools. So that's something that, you know, basically selfish local communities are going to to try to do. And if you have more of a national perspective, you realize, well, that, that doesn't make sense. Um, we, we want all our kids educated well. And so, so kind of raising the level at which decisions are made uh, in places like Japan have, have had really positive impacts. And they don't have, they've got, you know, lots of people in Japan, but they don't have the affordability crisis that that we have in so many regions in the United States. You know, the U.S. culturally is such an individualistic society, and it it feels like, you know, a lot of the current policies around zoning are kind of like baked into the culture of American society. So is there a path forward from where we are now to get us to a model that's closer to what Japan has? I think so, and actually, I... Uh, in, in, in interesting ways, I, I think the fact that we are an individualistic society cuts against exclusionary zoning in this way. Uh, there have been interesting alliances between liberals and conservatives on zoning reform. And liberals like me talk about you know, exclusion, civil rights, uh, equal opportunity, uh, housing affordability. Uh, conservatives talk about property rights. And the principle that if someone buys a plot of land, they should have a lot of say over what happens on that plot of land. They do not want the government telling them, uh, well, it might be more profitable for you to, uh, you know, to create a duplex on this property, uh, but it's, it's illegal. You know, so, so conservatives often will talk about positive reforms in zoning laws as a form of deregulation getting the government out of the business of deciding what to do. Um, but to your broader point about the politics of this, uh, when I started researching uh, my book, Excluded, there were not a whole lot of examples of success in bringing about reform. This was back in 2017. But in the last several years, we've seen an explosion in the number of communities that are changing their zoning laws to open up communities and try to tackle the, the housing affordability crisis. So it really started in Minneapolis in 2018 when they, you know, 70% of the land was set aside for single family homes. All the be- 14 out of the 15 best schools were 
in these areas. So if you were uh, an apartment or multifamily dweller, you couldn't be near these high-performance schools. And Minneapolis uh, in 2018 said housing is becoming too expensive. A group called Neighbors for More Neighbors said, you know, why are we treating our fellow citizens this way? They looked at the kind of the history of racism in the zoning laws and said they wanted to do something positive. And so when one fell swoop said that you can build a duplex or a triplex anywhere in the community, all the land that had been single family only. And they made a number of other changes that had a big impact, uh, actually a bigger impact in some ways that um, they reformed their parking, off-street parking requirements for new buildings. Uh, They allowed for more buildings uh, near transit. And this had a very uh, positive effect. So uh, that led to, you know, additional changes, California, Oregon, uh, Utah, Maine. I mean, we're seeing lots of places in throughout the country beginning to tackle zoning reform. So for for decades, not in my backyard, forces, NIMBYs, almost always won. And that's no longer true. Uh, and I think the, the situation became bad enough in terms of affordability that that we reached this crisis point where reform became politically possible and in many ways, you know, necessary and politically necessary for for candidates to be able to say, here's what I'm going to do about the fact that the rent's so damn high. I actually think that's a great note to end on. So Richard, thank you so much for joining me. Any final thoughts, additional plugs for your book, yeah. anything? <laughs> well, I'm always going to give additional plugs to the book. Uh, Excluded how snob zoning, nimbyism, and class bias build the walls we don't see. Uh, but thank, thank you very much, Gabriel. I, I've really enjoyed the conversation and appreciate your, your great questions. Thank you so much for listening to the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and check out more from Georgetown Public Policy Review at gppreview.com. Thanks.